Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, friends. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and sober coach. My addiction has shaped the person I am today and given me the ability and voice to help others, and I simply wouldn't be here without it. Recovery is possible. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who live them. Head on over to thesobrietydiaries.com where you can apply to be a guest on the show and join our insiders list for exclusive content, early release episodes, and much more. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Also, before we jump into things today, I wanted to take a minute to thank Exact Nature for sponsoring today's show. Founded by a father and son in addiction recovery, Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specifically formulated to help you face the challenges of recovery, be it anxiety, cravings, or even improving sleep. I absolutely love the Serenity Oil, and Exact Nature has even helped me kick the nicotine habit, which I am happy to say, now I am over two months nicotine-free. As a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 at exactnature.com for 20% off of your order. Again, use the code TSD20 at checkout. Happy Sober Day, friends. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and spending part of your day with me here on the Sobriety Diaries. Today, we are reintroducing a feature called the Recovery Roundtable, where I welcome back three guests that have all shared their stories on the show. We will frame our discussion around a specific topic as it relates to our addiction and recovery. Today's guests are Michael from episode 6, Kiana from episode 10, and Megan from episode 17. So let's open the diary on the Recovery Roundtable. Hi, friends. Thanks so much for coming back and for being a part of the Sobriety Diaries family. How is everyone? Excellent. <laughs> Excited to be here. Even on a Sunday night? Yeah, okay. even on a Sunday. <laughs> it's so good to see everyone. Uh, each of you have shared your story on, on the Sobriety Diaries. So uh, you've earned your spot here on the show. So it's good <laughs> to see everyone again. Likewise. It's really good to see you. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. Yeah. Uh, so today uh, I wanted to talk about denial and Oof. blaming others. Yes. It can be a uh, interesting topic, I guess, as it relates to addiction and recovery. Uh, I certainly um, used blaming others, and it sort of almost led into 
this justification of my behavior and this victim mentality that I mm. uh, became accustomed to and sort of, you know, to, again, justify my behavior and this chaos that I had created around me and this chaos that was my life. The denial was certainly a almost a catalyst, I guess, for my family to sort of be like, done with it. Like they, they, they were convinced I was like living in another dimension because I wasn't seeing <laughs> what was clearly the truth. You know, I, I was, I was living a dream and living quite literally in denial. So Kiana, I'm curious if you had this sort of similar experience. Did you blame others? Was there a victim mentality when you were sort of in the throes of your addiction? Well, absolutely. I think anybody who's in the throw of an addiction, we as a society are just so geared to pointing fingers at other people instead of accepting responsibility. And I think in addiction, it's very, very hard to be able to accept responsibility when the things that you're doing are just like so unbelievably out of your character, or out of your like your element that it's almost like you said, like you're living in a completely different dimension. Like your family's like, come on, wake up. Yeah. And one of the things that I had shared the the last time that we talked was, you know, looking back at my addiction and looking, looking back at that season of my life, someone recently had brought to the front of my attention, you know, I wish I understood that I didn't have to take any further levels to get to a certain place. Like we always look at people further in addiction and say, well, you know, I'm not an IV user, oh, I'm not homeless, or I can still hold down my job, but like none of those steps in between should have ever been acceptable. And I think that because we can look at other people and say, well, they're worse, we're not taking accountability and we're able to, like you said, we're able to completely deny the problem we have because we're always focused on where somebody else is. And when somebody else is worse, it's like, I can make excuses for, well, I don't look like that, but where you are never should have been okay for you to begin with. And I wish somebody had told me that. Right. I wish someone had told me I was in denial. The way I was living was literally denial. Uh, Megan, if I could, uh, we sort of talked about alcoholism as almost a learned behavior with your episode. So can you relate that to blaming someone else or being a victim of, of this behavior that you thought was perhaps normal? Yeah, for sure. So my story was, my I grew up with, alcoholic father. He committed suicide when I was 17. And I took that sad story with me for another two decades as the legitimation of, is that a word? of my, of my behavior, but it was definitely because that was what was modeled to me that, um, you know, I, I really looked at alcohol as a way to connect with people, a way to have these deep conversations, you know, to rehash these sad stories. Um, but actually when you were first talking about blame and denial, the first place that my mind went was, you know, I consistently blamed myself for the behavior, which just led me to want to drink again and numb out that shame, guilt spiral. So yeah, I, I, also didn't have like the first decade I was not very high functioning, but I was also pretty young. So I always, you know, surrounded myself with people that were equally far gone. So it didn't 
you know, nobody was like pointing out that I had a problem. I came home from this after hours club once by myself and my best friend and my brother, I don't even remember how, like maybe I left them at a party earlier. Anyway, they were at her house and it was like 9am on a Sunday and and I was just recanting. I'm like, yeah, Tori is my brother's name. I'm like, it's just so crazy. It's like the same people every weekend. And my brother's like, you realize that if you're observing, it's the same people every weekend. Like <laughs> yeah, you are one of those people. You are the captain of <laughs> that group. Like, <laughs> yep. So yeah, that's kind of where, but I definitely think society, the normalization of, of alcohol as this tool to feel better or, or, um, reminisce. Like, I feel like it's just a spiral. Like I'm actually going to post about this tomorrow, About most people don't understand how much alcohol is robbing them of their ability to feel joy because, you know, you're just screwing up your whole feedback system with your endorphins. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I really appreciated that until years into sobriety where you, just feel completely different that the, whatever is going on in your life. I, I feel like I, I, that's not my go-to anymore. I, there's so many more other tools I'd prefer to explore before Definitely. because it I just it doesn't make you feel better. It's so funny that you mentioned like, I had this delusion, like when I would be intoxicated far gone, you know, wasted. Um, I would have these deep conversations with people and always thought that it was like this groundbreaking, you know, genius conversation or like invention that I was going to like march to the patent's <laughs> office the next morning. And like, you know, all, all of these deep conversations where it, looking back, it was just delusion. It was complete delusion. And to your point, Megan, like there were never true feelings involved. And like, what is joy? I, I, I couldn't say that I ever felt joy in those, in those years. And I can now. So uh, just that, that level of delusion too, is just remarkable. You all just said something about like, I feel like I just gained a, a perspective from listening because I don't really have a history with alcohol. Alcohol was never really something that I participated in. I didn't drink, you know, in high school. I didn't drink in college. I didn't go to the bars once I was 21. But you had all just said something there about being at the bar and saying the same people are here every week. And I must be like the captain on the ship. You all just knew that exact phrasing of what it was. And I had to sit back and I said, oh, my goodness, like I just really gained a lot of perspective in that. I've never looked at it like that. And it, I just really feel like I learned a lot in that moment there. It's the same cast of characters every night. It's almost like living in like this hellish deja vu of like, <laughs> let me off this ride. All these people and all these stories are the same every night. But like, for some reason, you jump back into it. Well, like, I feel like that's interesting because as, as somebody who was an addict, like a more of a narcotic user, it was always a revolving door of people. Because we were always so horrible to each other and we were always really just screwing one another over that when somebody came in, they were gone the next day. You had a new best friend today. They were gone the next day. So this is really interesting to hear that, you know, the same people in the same place when I can't remember the same person twice. Like, this is incredible to see this. 
I've heard you, Kiana, talk about and also other uh, like narcotic users too about how it is um, a lot about the routine also of yeah. calling the dealer, getting the bag, getting the spoon, like all of the things that yeah. are involved in like prepping and getting ready it's the to ritual use. yeah and, and this bar scene is almost like the ritual and the routine of that wow. like you go and you expect to yeah. see the same people you talk about the same shit with bob who sits in the same chair at the end of the bar it's like this ritualistic behavior and this routine that you expect to yeah. see and i think that's a big part about the denial at least in my you know like i always put myself somewhere slightly above all those people you know, oh yeah. Like, yeah. I'm wow. somehow different because at least I'm reflecting on how fucked up this is. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm somehow not as bad. Yes. Yeah. Like there's so much worse off than me. It's denial. At yeah. least I'm not like that. Total denial. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I, I found some really Megan, I think you said a couple of really interesting things that resonate with me. And one of those being no nobody really confronted me too often to make me even feel denial early on. Right. Like I, I went pretty unchecked. I definitely kept my family at arm's length. Like they didn't really know what was going on. All my friends with me were, you know, partaking in the same thing. There was nobody there to check me on my shit. So I never had to deal with denial initially. And then I think later on, I was just in denial with like, you know, how, regular things were becoming how I was drunk every night. And I was like, oh no, this is normal. And you know, I kept kind of the same people around me that did the same thing every night. So I definitely felt that it was very normal. And I didn't, I think I purposely did that. So I didn't have to be in denial or feel right. denial, you know? Well, I feel like, cause it's so normalized, maybe even people might've like second guessed themselves on whether or not they, it's something that they could or even should approach you. You know, it is so normalized that maybe a lot of the times they said, oh, well, no, he's just like having a good time. Like it yeah. is so accepted in our society that maybe no one felt that they needed to pull you aside because maybe they have a certain control over their drinking that you just didn't. They just perceive it that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you were OK or maybe it's a phase. I think it's just so normalized that people don't even know how to approach it. I agree. Michael, do you think that you're like your active addiction or your drinking went on longer because of any like internal, like denial, denial to yourself that you had a problem? I think the main driving force to my addiction was the need to have fun and the need to, I connected with this group of friends that all did the same thing. We all drank every night and did a bunch of cocaine every night. And that was my entire world. And I didn't know any different. And I was afraid that I, if I stopped doing what I was doing, I would lose all my friends, which I did, you know, but was that anything of value that I lost? Not particularly because I had to get away from it. Um, but I don't know that I think there was always a nagging feeling going on in the back of my head that what I was doing was kind of, you know, not great for me. Uh, in the long run and that I had to quit, but I, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what we would call denial. huh? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't see it as a big enough problem to, to address until I was starting to repeat patterns that I swore I would never be that kind of parent <clears throat> that I lived through as a child. Blaming other people is just sort of another coping mechanism. I, realize that I have done that in sobriety as well. And 
it's just like, it, it made me kind of sick to my stomach. And, you know, I tried to have positive coping mechanisms and to, to, to deal with things uh, in, in positive ways. And I guess what are your thoughts on and or do you think that it is actually a coping mechanism that we use? Well, yeah. And I'd like to use a real life example that you and I personally have talked a lot about. Um, so I have, you know, the privilege of being a moderator for a group that is on a very public platform. I am a graduate of, of a faith-based long-term program and, you know, people will have things to say about different experiences they go through. You know, people are people, experiences are real. And, um, being a moderator in this group, a lot of people have joined this group in order to express a lot of their concerns, you know, some of their grievances, the experiences that they've had in this program across the country. And the reason why I joined this group, particularly as a moderator, wasn't because necessarily I felt that way, but was because I was able to sit down and be really rational about some of these things that had happened. I was able to sit down, look at these circumstances kind of objectively and say, okay, this was the residents' responsibility, and this is what they didn't get, and this is what was the staff's responsibility and what they didn't give. And we were able to sit down and really look at it objectively, you know, where do these delegations have to go? And what I see in this group time and time again are so many people who had like young life experiences, maybe 15, 20, 25 years ago that are still blaming some of the situations that had happened in this program 30 years ago. And we never want to deny a person's testimony, a survivor's story, because what happened is real. And there are some serious things, you know, there are some serious repercussions from trauma. But at some point, the reason why they brought me in was to find this line of this reasoning of hold on, though. Like, yes, these things happen, but at some point you have to make a decision for yourself whether or not you want to get well. We can delegate who's responsible for what, but it starts with looking at yourself first. And what we see a lot of the people writing in these groups are saying, you know, back when I was 14, this happened and now I'm 39 and my life is still a mess. It's like, but you've had, you know, have you worked 15, on you've had 15 years to try and sort out and do some inner work, but they're still blaming. And yes, it's because they've used it as a coping mechanism. The world tells them it's not their fault. Look at everybody else. And a lot of the things that happen to us that are perpetrated on us are not our fault. Yeah. We're not victim shaming. We're not victim blaming. A lot of the things that happen to us aren't our fault. But at some point, we have to wake up, get out of bed, and choose to do better, like choose to seek better, choose to have better for ourselves. And that starts with looking at ourselves. What can I do? When we say the serenity prayer, <laughs> it's God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change mm. and then courage to change the things I can like to be able to step out and do that and say, well, this is what I'm responsible for. I can't do anything about what's been perpetrated against me, but I can stand up today affirmed and like take a step in the right direction and start to, you know, walk in healing and forgiveness and, and take off that abandonment. Or I can choose to shrink up again. Like I see so many of these kids in these groups and say, it's all their fault. I'm here today, 20 years later because of what they did to me. I love that. Yeah. And I wanted to, there is this line, right. Of, you know, we can we can have this victim mentality, but there are actual victims, to your point, who have been perpetrated against that I would imagine it is 
10 times harder to then not take that and use it as yeah. a uh, negative coping mechanism or skill and use it not to motivate them to better themselves and motivate them to uh, sort of turn it around and, you know, use it to your point to step out and work on yourself. And if I can actually just add something to that, I think that we as people, especially in recovery, we just don't like to be corrected either. It's why so many people, you know, walk away from their sponsors, why they walk away from the fourth step. It's like people just don't like to be corrected because we have this image of love. We think love is like, oh, it's so soft and coddling. But like sometimes you have to speak some serious things to people in love. If you love somebody, you don't want them to kill themselves. You don't want them to continue in these behaviors. But sometimes when when, you know, when it hits the pavement. And things get a little bit difficult and, you know, there's some confrontation. A lot of people walk away. They don't like to take a look at themselves and they don't want to be corrected, but you have to be willing to receive those things and be like, okay, be honest with yourself. When it comes to blaming others, uh, you know, I don't think I ever directly pointed the finger at anybody, but I allowed like the commiseration and the uh, kind of camaraderie in being an addict to drag me down as well and keep me in that cycle which was like okay they're all doing it or okay I wasn't really wasn't gonna do cocaine tonight but my friend called the guy and he's coming anyways so I might as well because I'm not feeling really well and it'll really turn my night around like not like in the face of somebody questioning me was I like it's not me it's him but you know I was allowing my own inner self to blame others for keeping the party going always. Yeah. Yeah. Same. That makes total sense to me. I did the same thing for years. Megan, do you think that denial can be an obstacle to recovery and like setting forth on, on a path to sobriety? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think even, I mean, I think denial is something people even outside of circles of recovery and addiction, just, I mean, we are fed these narratives and if no one puts a mirror to your face, like in my case, <laughs> children are the best mirror. <laughs> they literally start regurgitating truth, right? back what you, yeah. what you say, not only to them, but you to yourself. And um, so like in my case, the narrative was, oh, I was dealt this sad card. Um, my, you know, the, the sad story of what happened to me when I was young. And um, instead of, you know, it's really just in the last year and a half that I've completely shifted that narrative. Like I just held on to this, all the, the negative things that my dad left with me scarring emotionally habits modeling behavior all the things and had just kind of like erased you know he taught me to take risks he taught me how to downhill ski and to do it aggressively taught me to be independent to how to research like he just taught me so many other things but that wasn't the narrative that I held on to for decades and so I think part of like my work as a mindset coach is helping people rewrite whatever narrative and understand that you have the power to write your story and you can be the hero or you can be the sad story. And it's really 
a choice. I completely agree with you that it's a choice. And I think it's controversial sometimes. And it's maybe like at what point in someone's recovery do they really have a choice versus needing a lot more support. But I think at some point it's, are you going to let it go? That sad story and own a new one? Or do you want to just marinate? So does anyone have someone in their life who is denying that they have a problem and not necessarily with drugs or alcohol, but some aspect of their life? I had a really interesting experience um, that has happened since my episode first aired. Yeah. Where I had some friends reach out to me from the before times and kind of say to me, you weren't that bad. What are, you, what are you doing? Your sobriety diaries? Like, you were never that. Come on, let's wow. be real. Which, like, I, it really took me stepping away from everything to see how far I was into it. And, you know, we're all older now and they're not the party animals they used to be, uh, these people. But, like, it, I think if they just completely stopped drinking or using or whatever they're doing, they would also see how they're kind of truly in denial as well. Wow. And it was really interesting to me to be like, okay, well, you're like gatekeeping my sobriety and you're also in denial yourself. So that that was pretty interesting. Crazy. I mean, that was like even part of your story, how it was like not necessarily coming to this huge bottom or this, you know, disgusting nasty chaotic bottom or whatever it was just you deciding that alcohol and and drugs were not working in your life and you wanted something better so yeah that is crazy how they would sort of gatekeep your sobriety and you know working on yourself as a person i mean what what is the harm in that well i i think it's tough sometimes for people to see success or somebody change for the better and then they have to do the self-reflection Right. And look at themselves and go, oh, well, I haven't done that. Or maybe I should do that, but it's so hard. I don't want to do it. I don't want to take that first step. And, you know, they're probably comparing themselves against others. But what you should really do is just, you know, change yourself, how you be, how you want to be. Right. It just does really show how, like, common alcohol is, how, you know, how much alcoholism is downplayed. <laughs> Yeah. That people are like, oh, no, it's okay. You sh- you don't have to be sober. You weren't that bad. Like That's definitely what I thought, too. Like, I, I'm guessing, Michael, they're not even really reflecting. They're still in the rationalization of how they're not in that category. Yeah. True. Yeah. Rationalizing. Exactly. I have- Megan, what is a um, positive coping mechanism that you use on a daily basis? Uh, meditation is pretty key. Yeah. I- I'm at the point that even if I just miss a day, I can sense it with my level of patience and ability to just take a breath before I react to things. And, and that probably would have been the case if I still had the layer of red wine in the afternoons, but yeah, yeah, I just, I guess I just can't really imagine my life without it. It's kind of my go-to. I often meditate twice a day now. Michael, yeah, how about I you? Like uh, I, I would like to speak to Megan's meditation point. I spoke so highly of meditation in my episode, and my practice has since completely fallen off. Uh-oh. Um, and I would love to get back to it. 
uh, I've been crazy busy between getting married and we just moved, bought a house and moved into it and it needs all sorts of stuff done. Uh, here I am making excuses. It only takes five minutes in the morning. I really need to get back into it because I miss how in control I felt when I would meditate in the morning, how like things kind of just stacked in order. It was like a nice Tetris game. Um, I've since actually started therapy just a couple of weeks ago. I only have one visit under my belt, but that's been an interesting experience, kind of visiting all of my deep, dark places. Yeah. With a, a doctor. Yeah. Um, Good for you. Thank you. I'm excited to do it some more. Kiana, other than chasing Phoebe around, um, <laughs> what, what is something that you use daily? Oh, well, you know, I'm a woman in the faith. <laughs> A woman in the faith. So um, if I don't get into that word and if I don't meditate on it, if I don't sit there and renew my mind, if we just don't set our mind on things that are above, then we are so clouded with the chaos that is down here. And like, yeah, you can you can worry about the things that are going on and put all this energy into different places. But if you know what the end result is, okay, if you just know how it ends, and you don't need to, you don't even need to worry about wasting your energy in other places. It's like you're just literally polluting your mind. So like I get into my word. I spend time, I meditate on it, and I just put on I'm I'm a worship leader. I'm a worship pastor. I put on worship and I just sit through it all day. I just allow it to minister. Like sometimes I will lay on the ground like with my eyes closed and I will just do what we call just like soaking in the prayer, like just allowing the music to completely encompass you. Music is incredible. Like music is, is that thing that just puts all people together. Like the universe is on vibrational frequencies that play like an orchestra Mm. and they are all in unity together and to lay down and just as a person who's a musical person in music, for me to be able to sit under that and just receive when I'm the person who's always pouring it out, like that's a spiritual experience for me. So I sit, I get in that word, I meditate in the word, and then I just allow the words and the music just to minister to me because I'm always ministering and I can't pour out if I don't fill up. So I just receive it. Everything, everything is, we're pulled to one another and pulled to things by this vibrational pull, right? Yeah. Uh, Megan, your podcast has turned me onto that and like these different, um, this, these frequencies. So I was, I was thinking when you were talking about your receiving the sound, it's like you're, mm. you're in your own kind of sound bath, raising yeah. your frequency. Sound baths are cool. I love that. And you can literally feel it. Like there, it's what we call, like what we call entering in. You know that you've entered in because everything in you, you can feel this vibrational frequency. And a lot of the time, like tears come because your shell is just it's gone. Like you're, you're present. You're in the moment. It's incredible. When I was drinking and partying a lot, I used to listen to such like angry, violent, loud music. And I, I revisit it sometimes because like, you know, it's what I grew up on. (laughs) It's nostalgic to me, but I just can't like listen to like six hours of like black flag anymore or something. It's like, ah, it's too intense for me. You know, I think maybe you're a little numb when you're uh, drinking, partying. And when you're when you're sober, that stuff's a little too uh, confrontational. Yeah, just angry and harsh. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But it's in so in alignment with the, the drug of choice, right? Like yeah. Alcohol is sort of that frequency of of either the sad song, the sad country song, or yeah. the heavy metal. <laughs> the alcohol combined with Coke is right. yeah. heavy metal. I mean, that's, that's metal, literally. Metal. Right. Yeah. I just want to restress how important it is to have like a good person to help you. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And when you're so early in recovery, and when you have to be reprimanded, you know, you really do need somebody to walk with you and point out like, hey, like you're blame shifting or like, hey, you're being manipulative right now. Or, hey, you're not really being honest or forthcoming. Like, let's try this again. Like, where are you really going? You know, if you don't have somebody to step in and be able to correct you like that, it's why having a good sponsor is so important. It's why having a good mentor is so important. It's why surrounding yourself with like-minded people is so important. Because sometimes you just don't know how to implement what you don't know. Somebody has to teach it to you. And you you can't just learn all these things you've never studied. Like you can't just walk into a hospital and step in and expect that you're going to be a doctor. There's like a lot of training, a lot of things that have to come with it. Someone has to instruct you, has to show you. So it's really just swallow the pride, you know, be prideful enough to say like you deserve it, but swallow your own pride into saying, I can't do it on my own and just let people help you. It's not going to feel good. Just let them help you. Remain teachable, right? Teachable, be teachable, be teachable, be willing. And that is um, pretty much all, all, I mean, all you can ask for. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, helping me to resurrect the recovery roundtable. I'm asking listeners for some feedback uh, to see if they would like to hear more of this sort of group uh, style podcast. And we shall see what uh, the results are. But uh, I'd love to welcome you all back if we continue with it. And uh, I appreciate your, your input tonight. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. Make sure you check the show notes for all the information that we discussed in today's episode. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. You can find all things podcast related and subscribe to our show at the sobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries pod. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, friends.